be entering into a new sermon series um, for the first half of this year on the book of Ephesians. And I have the pleasure of welcoming us into that book. As you can see, we're going to do two verses this morning, uh, and we're going to do two verses every single... No, I'm kidding. Um, We're only doing a little bit of an introduction this morning, which is really exciting for me. Uh, We're going to be looking at the who, what, when, where, how, and why of Ephesians. So before I do that, let me go ahead and pray and let's kick off 2023 right. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come here uh, and make bad jokes, threaten to beat each other. No, uh, and we can just come here, Lord, uh, in a new year and we just have a space to worship, um, to seek community, to, yeah, like Tiana said, express our needs, our desires uh, with one another. in ways that points us towards you, Lord. So I pray that that's true of us as a church. I pray that we can be a church that loves each other well, um, loves those outside of these walls well, Lord, uh, and we can continue to point one another and others to you, Lord. I pray this morning that I can tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So first off, we're going to do the who. Paul is our author. Now, I don't have enough time to talk about Paul this morning, but his, er, his whole life is documented in the Bible. So if you want to do that, you can. And it is to the Ephesians, of course, right? But we're going to explore them in the where section. Okay, that's our who. Let's go ahead and go to our what. Our what is the letter to the Ephesians. Perfect. We're doing great, right? Um, I should say this. There's, there's speculation about this letter, and it's speculation I tend to agree with, that Ephesians and its purpose is slightly different than the other letters that Paul wrote uh, in the New Testament. Paul, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but Paul wrote 13 letters. Sorry, he probably wrote more letters. There are 13 of Paul's letters that are counted as the canon of the Bible, right? And most of his letters address specific issues. You think about Galatians addresses the Judaizers within their church, right? You think about 1 Corinthians, it addresses a lot, right? Uh, In most of Paul's letters, he's writing to a specific church with specific issues. Ephesians, however, is far more broad in what it speaks of and how it is structured. We will get into these themes and structures this morning, but what's most important right now is this. As a result, many speculate that this letter was actually intended for far more than just one specific church, that it was sort of a general letter to be passed around to different churches. Now, I tend to believe that it's for, it, and I think that there is good reason to believe this. I don't just make up it, but uh, there, it was to a bunch of uh, churches in the region. So when we look at Ephesus later in Acts um, and what we know about the region, that, that's still important, right? There are still things that inform the way that Paul writes this letter, but it is a far more general letter, which is probably why we're actually looking at it, right? Because it has a far more like general truths for us as believers. Okay, so that's our what? Let's go to our when. You guys are like, man, we're gonna be done in seven minutes. It's not true. Um, I know you have a football game to get to, though, Steve, so we'll be done. Yeah. Um, Okay, when? It's during Paul's Roman imprisonment uh, is when he wrote this, between 60 and 62 AD, okay? So that's about 30-ish years after the death of Jesus. This is around the same time that Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon, as he sent all three letters by the hand of Tychus. Tychicus, I think. Uh, If I'm wrong, don't tell me. And uh, Tychicus was accompanied by um, Onesimus. 
uh, who Philemon is about Onesimus and his relation to Philemon, right? Um, so we know this because Paul includes that Tychicus uh, is the one delivering these letters in each of these. And so what you're going to see if you end up wanting to look on your own, Ephesians and Colossians in particular have very, very similar themes to them. Um, and you can even sort of map it out a little bit, those themes, and that's really fun to do. So that's the win, right? We just knocked out all the easy ones. So we are now going to spend the bulk of our time in the where, how, and why uh, of Ephesians. Now, let's go ahead and explore the where. Now, obviously, the short answer here is Ephesus, right? And clearly, we addressed this part earlier, but we're still going to take a look at Ephesus because I think there's a lot of really good things to pull out um, of the region. So what do we know about Ephesus? Well, there are a couple things that we know outside of the Bible. We know Ephesus was a coastal city in ancient Greece, which is current-day Turkey. It's in the Izmir region of Turkey. Uh, the city was famous in the day for the nearby temple of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of chastity for the Greeks. Uh, I think it's Diana, Diana, yeah, Diana of the Romans. Um, and the temple has now been designated as one of the seven wonders of the world. So a big deal, right? Uh, so what that means is it's a coastal city, so it was a center for trade, economic development, right? But it has the temple of Artemis, so it's the center of worship of some of their... Um, their, their goddesses, particularly Artemis. You can see here, Ephesus is right there. You guys see that on the coast there in the province of Asia. So later, Paul in Acts 19, it talks about the, the gospel going to all of the province of Asia. And so just for your reference, that's what they mean there. Not the entire continent as we know it today. Okay, so that's what we know sort of, we know a lot more, but that's what's pertinent to, it, pertinent to us this morning outside of the Bible. What do we know from the Bible? Uh, so Paul, there's, there's an encounter of Paul with Ephesus in Acts 19, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. Uh, and, but instead of reading the whole story, we're gonna, just going to look at some key observations in, uh, in order to sort of highlight the ways in which God was working in that region. Okay, so this is how it starts. Uh, Wait, sorry, lost my flight. Okay, let's just read this. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So first key observation in here. You guys see this? God precedes Paul in the region of Ephesus, right? And so Paul, probably the greatest, um, we'll say greatest missionary of all time, I think is probably fair to say, right? Uh, and God still precedes him. We already see that God is already at work in the region of Ephesus before Paul gets there. Why is this important? Well, I believe uh, it obviously shows that God was softening people's hearts and revealing Jesus to them. And, and I think that this is actually a little bit more of a widespread idea for us, that God precedes us in the work of ministry. There's this really fun string of events that happen in the Bible, or this sort of theme that happens over and over and over, that has been a great, great encouragement to my life. <clears throat> Let me show you this. So first off, first one, Exodus 2. Moses, he's a man. He meets God in the burning bush, right? The Israelites at this time are enslaved in Egypt, and God tells Moses that he sees the affliction of his people through the burning bush, and he hears the cries of the people. So what is God going to do? He's going to send Moses, right, to rescue his people. 
Moses then comes up with a whole bunch of excuses as to why it's not going to be Moses, right? And all of them have to do with something outside of him, right? It's like, nah, someone else can do it. Like, he, he gives up a whole list of excuses. And then, in a culmination of their conversation, Moses reveals his true insecurity by saying this, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, we've probably heard this, right? Moses, not a very eloquent man, could not use his words good. Um, thank you. <laughs> Three of you got that. Um, and, but what is God's response? God's response is, oh, Moses, you are good at speaking, right? No, he doesn't say that. God says this, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Th thanks, Dariq. Man, I've, just me and him this morning. You want me to just preach to you? Yeah, isn't that incredible? Like, God is saying that he will be with Moses and guide him in what to do. Okay, let me give you another one. Jeremiah 1. God is calling Jeremiah to be a prophet to the Israelites. But what does Jeremiah say when he's called that? Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak, for I am too young. And God's response, you'll grow up, or you're great for a kid. No, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, right? Again, insecurity in not being able to do what God has called you to do, and God's direct response is, I am with you. Just so we get the point, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, probably a familiar passage to some. Jesus is about to send to heaven, but he leaves his disciples with this passage. Then Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, Jesus doesn't even let them express their insecurity at this point, right? He knows they're insecure, right? What, but what, what, do we, what does he know that they need to know? He knows that when they're told to go and make disciples, he will be with them always to the end of the age. See, God makes it abundantly clear that he can do his work of ministry on his own, right? But people are his plan A. Using people to reach people are is his plan A. And even then, God always precedes us in the work, and he is always with us in the work, okay? So continuing in Acts 19, Paul finds some disciples, right? And then the text says this. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, Christianity. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so Paul preaches the gospel to the Jewish people in the region, and then he moves to the Greeks in that region until everyone in the region heard the gospel. Pretty great stuff. The chapter then goes on to explain some really amazing things happen in Ephesus as a result of Paul sharing the gospel. People were healed of their disease, evil spirits were driven out, and people gave their lives to, to Jesus entirely. 
even giving up things like sorcery to follow him. Uh, and it costs them money is what it talks about in the passage. They like burn these books and they're like, man, those books were like a ton of money, these sorcery books, um, which is pretty crazy. The gospel affected the region dramatically, so dramatically that it impacted the economic structure enough to make some folks mad, right? You see, chapter 19 ends with a recounting of a reaction to Paul's ministry. There's this blacksmith named Demetrius who makes these statues of Artemis, right? The Greek goddess of uh, chastity. Forgot for a second. And since Christianity had begun impacting the region, fewer people were worshiping Artemis and fewer people were buying these idols, these statues of Artemis, right? So Demetrius, the blacksmith, calls people together and look at the language he uses in order to rally people against Paul. He says, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine ministry, majesty. And the crowd becomes enraged as a result of the words of Demetrius. Do you see how he acknowledges the financial impact on himself? But then he spiritualizes it, right? in order to get buy-in from those outside of his practice. I do believe Demetrius, at some level, did believe that they were maligning um, Artemis, but I have a tendency to believe that people in power who are benefiting from something like buying these idols often care a lot more about power than they do about Artemis, right? That's a whole sermon. Can't do it, but I want to. See, following Jesus will naturally push on the idols of your life and even of those around you, right? Particularly if we live our uh, relationship with Jesus in a public fashion. And I am convinced that this in particular shows the ways in which kingdom work presses on financially, financially exploitive practices and oppression. We have to be people who are both willing to explore the ways this is the case, around us and receive blowback from those who would rather protect empire than encounter kingdom, right? So quick recap of everything we've learned about Ephesus. God precedes Paul in Ephesus. Everyone in the region hears the gospel and the gospel impacted idol worship and financial practices of the region. You guys with me? All right, let's go ahead and go to our next to last question, how? In other words, how does Paul set up the structure of the letter and what does it reveal to us? Now, Ephesians' structure is actually one of the easiest structures to map out if you look at it. And I think uh, this goes hand in hand with that, but it's also one of the most important structures of an entire book of the Bible. The the structure just reveals the meaning in a way that is so rich, and that's what we're going to look at. See, the book is broken into six chapters, with the first three, three chapters having a similar thing, and the, the next three chapters having a similar thing. And the verse right in the middle, verse 4-1, uh, sort of brings them both together and makes that transition, and we'll look at that. The first three chapters are often labeled as this, indicatives. Can everyone say indicatives? In other words, what is indicative of what is true of Christians as a result of Jesus? The first three chapters tell us that we are blessed by every spiritual blessing in Jesus, that we are adopted as daughters and sons of God, that we have received the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee uh, or our down payment of our inheritance. It tells us that we were once dead, but now we are alive, that we, are one, we once had no purpose, but now we are God's workmanship 
or in the Greek, God's poema, his poem. It tells us that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down between Gentiles and Jews. See it? It just lists off truth after truth after truth. What is true of you as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross and, and as a result of your following him, right? I think you should know this too. There is one stinking command, total, one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians, right? And do you know what that, that command is? It's chapter two, verse 11. I don't have it up here. It says, remember. That's what it says. That's the command, remember. And do you know what we're supposed to remember? That God brought close those who were far. That's the, the only command in the first three verses. So it is, all, it, it is even related to what is true of us as a result of the gospel, right? Whole three uh, chapters, what is true, as a, true of us as a result of Jesus. Let's look at a, a great summary for these chapters. Verse one, or sorry, chapter one, verses 18 through 20. Praying, Paul says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that me, you may, sorry, I am stumbling over words. I'm getting excited. Let me start again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now we're gonna preach on this passage eventually, so I'm not gonna steal any thunder, but do you see the language? It is all language to express things that have been done to us or are true of us, right? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Language to convey it is something done to us, not something that we do. And why do we need to be enlightened? In order to see what is true of us. That we have a hope that we have been called to, right? That we are God's inheritance. This one, look at that. It says the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. Do you know what that, that's saying? We often think, we see this language, we're like, oh yeah, we have some inheritance. No, this is talking about God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance? his holy people. We are God's inheritance. Come on now. Yeah. And, and so we also may understand that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead is the one working in us today to redeem us and keep us. Right? This is the, the summary of the first three chapters. It reveals that we are fully known and fully loved by God because of Jesus by the Spirit. It reveals to us our position in Christ. Everybody say position. Our position in Christ means that we are seen by God, the Father, as he sees God, the Son, right? It means that he knew, uh, he who knew no sin became sin so that Jesus, right? So we might become the righteousness of God. It means that when God, the Father, said to Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, he was saying that to us, Right? This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Our position in Christ is one that is secure and one that is because of the grace of God by faith, not by anything we've done. That's what the first three chapters highlight for us, right? Okay, so what about the next th three chapters? Uh, Paul starts the next three chapters like this with verse, uh, chapter four, verse one. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called or worthy of the calling you have received, a.k.a. because you are a son or daughter of God, act like it, right? You are loved, 
act loved. You are empowered, be empowered. You were saved by grace, sit down and be humble, right? So the last three chapters are often labeled the imperatives. Can everyone say imperatives? It is imperative for you to live this way as a result of the indicatives of the first three chapters, right? Another way to think of this section is this. If the first three chapters highlight our position in Christ, the next three chapters give us instruction to live out of that position as a result of our condition, right? Our condition is the truth about where we are at. In other words, while our position is defined by the fact that we have received the righteousness of Christ, that we are seen by God as perfect, we, are no, we know that we are not actually perfect in this moment, right? <clears throat> so we need instruction to live out that righteousness. But one question remains about the structure. Why is it so important? Why do, what does it reveal to us, right? This is actually not the why, sorry. Yeah, this is confusing. We're going to do a why is the structure important, so... It's still in the how, and then we'll get to the why. I know, confusing. Okay, I believe the structure of Ephesians points directly to the spiritual truth that our call to live holy lives is not to earn God's favor. It's a result of God's favor, right? See, if, that was, if it was the case that we had to earn God's favor, favor through our holy living, the book would begin, do this, do this, do this. And if that's true, then these things will be true, right? But it's flipped, Right? The book starts what, with what is true of us, not because we have to do things in order to earn God's favor, but because that has already been done, right? The word, Jesus' last words on the cross were not, now go be good, right? No, his last words were, it is finished, right? The first three chapters of Ephesians are saying, it is finished, and because it is finished, that it, this is true of those who put their faith in the fact that it is finished, right? So what do you have to do to something that is already finished? Nothing. Yeah, that's right, Derek. We bring nothing to the table in the work of salvation. God has done it all. So we release that burden, family. But the last three chapters do show that we do not just go on sinning, right? By no means. No, live like the child you are. But not only because you are commanded to, but because it is already true of you and because you have been given the power to do so via the Spirit. And if I'm being honest, it's better for you, right? Live out of our position in Christ, and the condition will follow. All right, so that is the how, and finally, the why, so we can get Steve to his football game. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's too easy. Um, I think we have hit on a lot of whys for why we'll be studying this book, right? And there are some great whys, right? Think about Again, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. We want to know that we have been called to hope, that we are his inglorious inheritance, that we, uh, the power at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, right? We want to know what is positionally true of us as a result of Jesus, and we want to know how to act as a result. But the why I want to end with this morning is found in the beginning two verses that Jason read that we haven't looked at at all. <laughs> So let's look at them one more time. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like a customary greeting, right? And for Paul, it was his customary greeting. But customary does not mean pointless, right? You see, Paul is beginning his letter in a very specific way to frame the reader's reading of it. What does Paul highlight here? 
He highlights that he's an apostle because God wanted him to be, right? According to God's will. He highlights that he is writing to the people that are already Christians in Ephesus, God's holy people, the faithful in Jesus. And then he highlights that the letter comes with grace and peace from God and Jesus, right? And that's what we want to finish with because I believe it is vital to understand the why of Ephesians in every single letter Paul writes. First off, Paul says that the grace and peace come from God. And by writing this, Paul is the one that relays the message directly from God, right? Pastor Rich uh, Vilotas said it this way. When Paul opens his epistles with grace and peace to you from our from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than just a customary greeting. He writes as one who has actually been with the Father and Son through the presence of the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Paul is conveying to the Ephesians and subsequently to us that he comes as a messenger straight from God with grace and peace, right? Which is pretty sweet, right? The book of Ephesians is simply coming to us as a heap of grace. And listen, I could always use more grace, right? But I don't think that fully captures the depth of this greeting. Look at the way Paul ends Ephesians. The last verse of the book, verse 24 of chapter 6, says this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So Paul greets us by saying this, right? Like, what I have to say to you is grace from our God. And then he sends out this letter And he says, may this grace that I just sent to you stay with you as you finish this letter, right? Or as you leave this place, you are hearing this letter. May the grace be with you, right? Grace to you and grace be with you. And this isn't actually particular only to Ephesians, right? I already said this, but 13 of Paul's letters are part of the canon of the Bible. 13 letters to churches and individuals And I want you to sit back and relax for a minute, as if you're not already doing so, because I want you to see how each one of his letters begins and ends. You ready? Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God. Last chapter, 1620. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay? Very next one in the order of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 3. Grace to you and peace from God. 1623, last chapter of the book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Corinthians 1-2, grace to you. 13-14, grace be with you. Galatians 1-3, grace to you. 6-18, grace be with you. Philippians 1-2, grace to you. 4-23, grace be with you. Colossians 1-2, you know it, grace to you. 4-18, grace be with you. That's right. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, grace to you, grace be with you. Philemon, Philemon has 25 verses. Do you know what it starts with? Grace to you. Do you know what it ends with? Grace be with you. That's right, yeah. But two of the 25 verses, that's like, what, 8% of the whole book? Grace to you. Grace be with you. I need to stop doing math on stage. That one was right, but I need to stop doing math on stage. So why are we studying Ephesians? Because when you come here on Sunday morning, regardless of what has happened to you that week or what has occurred in our world, we want this space to be grace to you, right? A reminder of that it is by grace we have been saved and by grace we are sustained. It is by grace we sing and it is by grace we sit in silence, right? It is by grace we love one another. It is by grace we are loved. Grace to you in this space this morning.
And when we leave, grace be with you. Grace be with you when you're having marital strife. Grace be with you when your boss has been disrespectful or is asking too much. Grace be with you when you're feeling lonely, fighting addiction, when the weather directly impacts your comfort. Grace be with you when you're asked to love someone you don't want to love. Grace be with you when you aren't loved yourself or feeling loved yourself. Grace to you, church, and grace be with you. Paul, in Romans 5, says it this way. Through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, right? Think about that. Like, we, we constantly stand in grace as a protection over us. And as a result, we boast in the hope of the glory of the Lord. So stand in that grace, church, both here this morning and as we leave with one another. May grace be with us.